Today's sermon comes from Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. 2012 uh, episode of the TV show Parenthood was titled Everything is Not Okay. And it focused on uh, a character named Christina. She's the mother and, and wife who had been diagnosed with breast cancer. And the gravity of the diagnosis and what she was dealing with was sharply contrasted with her husband, Adam, who was very optimistic and very cheery. Uh, and, and what it did to Christina was not leave her in a good place. It wasn't helpful with how cheery he was and optimistic and you're going to get through it, just that kind of message. And it wasn't helpful. She got to the place where she didn't want to speak with him anymore. And uh, the episode goes on and she's speaking with friends and sharing what she's struggling with. And then it gets to the end of the, the episode and she confronts her husband, Adam, uh, with, a, with a statement that gets at the heart of what it, what it means to be a sufferer. Here's what she said. I know that you're trying to make everything okay for me. You always have our whole lives, and I love you so much for that. But you have to let me be scared. I want to be able to come to you and just say, Adam, I'm really scared today. And I just want you to hear it. I don't want you to tell me to think positive and that everything is going to be great. Because right now, I'm not sure that it's going to be. And I just want to be able to feel scared. That's just what I need from you right now. You know, when it comes to grief and sorrow, we don't always do a good job of handling it. Personally, in our own hearts, but even in how we address others who are going through grief and sorrow. It's what the Bible calls lament. And if we don't do well handling it, the question is, then how are we supposed to handle it well? This morning, some of you are in a place of grief and sorrow, and Psalm 13 is connecting immediately with your heart. Some of you are not there. Life's going well now, but you need to know that in your immediate vicinity is someone who is right in the middle of Psalm 13 and probably a place that you have been in the near past. And so the question becomes, if we don't deal with grief and sorrow well, how are we supposed to handle it? Biblically, how, how do you pray through tears? How do you deal with tears? Psalm 13 gives us a beautiful picture of what it means to pray through tears. First, it means to lament with trust. You know, the Psalm 13 is one of many psalms that are called psalms of lament. Now, what does the word lament mean? It means to, to passionately express sorrow and grief. To lament means to passionately, 
from the heart express sorrow and grief. And that's what David does here in the first two verses. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? David is describing the dark night of the soul. He's describing an intense grief, intense sorrow, the kind that, as he says here, troubles him all day long, that he can't stop thinking about it. It's so heavy, this enemy that troubles him. Now, what's the enemy that David is speaking of here? Well, we don't know. Uh, could it be Saul that was pursuing David before he became king? Maybe. Was it Absalom, David's son, who plotted to take him down when he was king? Maybe. Was it death? Was it a physical ailment? We don't know, but does it really matter? It doesn't. The fact is, David is feeling this dark night of the soul. He's experiencing intense sorrow, intense grief, as we all have at some point. I, I still remember vividly when Kim and I were struggling with infertility before the birth of our first daughter. And I will tell you that we experienced emotional and spiritual pain on a level that I've never experienced before. And there were nights when, when we'd be just weeping. The tears are just flowing and, and flowing and flowing. And we were wondering, are we gonna be able to wake up tomorrow and do tomorrow? That kind of grief, that kind of sorrow. And while we've all experienced it, we don't always handle it well. We don't know what to do with it in our own heart, let alone of how to counsel somebody else in it. We find ourselves often with grief and sorrow trying to get distance from it or trying to move past it, trying to get past it. And we don't give ourselves the freedom to grieve. Now, let me, I'm gonna give you two reasons why I believe that's the case. Why in general, and I'm speaking in general here, we don't feel the freedom to grieve or to lament like we see in the Psalms. Two reasons. One is theological. I'll start there. An overemphasis on God's sovereignty or I'll say an out-of-balance emphasis on God's sovereignty can short-circuit grief and sorrow. It goes something like this, and maybe you've been here. Trial hits, pain hits, and you say, if God is sovereign, and if I really believe that God was sovereign and that he had great purpose in this and that he loved me in this and that he was behind all this and he's in control, then why am I so sorrowful? And it's, the, it's that, that argument that if God's sovereign, I shouldn't be grieving right now. Right? I should be doing James 1, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. And so an out-of-balance emphasis on God's sovereignty can lead us to wanting to just get through it because to not get through it quickly says we must not have a, enough faith. We must have a lack of faith, a lack of trust in who we know God to be. That's, that's one reason why we don't have the freedom to grieve. The second is a cultural reason. I don't know if you figured it out, but our culture is allergic to pain. I mean, our culture is get rid of pain, right? Pain bad, happiness good. And so do whatever you can to get rid of pain. 
So we find ourselves in a place where we don't have freedom to grieve or freedom to lament. Pastor Rick Warren and his wife Kay's son, Matthew, uh, at the age of 27, committed suicide. And it was after a long battle with mental illness. And about a year after his death, Kay, his mother, wrote this about what it means to grieve. She said, the truest friends and helpers are those who wait for the griever to emerge from the darkness that swallowed them alive without growing afraid, anxious, or impatient. They don't pressure their friend to be the old familiar person they're used to. They're willing to accept that things are different, embrace the now scarred one they love, and are confident that their compassionate, non-demanding presence is the surest expression of God's mercy to their suffering friend. They're okay with messy and slow and few answers, and they never say, move on. Psalm 13 and many of the Psalms give you freedom to grieve. Not only freedom, but what we see in Psalm 13 is is a description of how to walk with God. Why else would God say in Psalm 56, 8, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle, are they not in your book? Notice what God says. God doesn't say, quit your crying. Don't you know who I am? I'm I'm sovereign, I'm king, I'm Lord, I'm in control. I love you. James 1, you know I bring it with great purpose. Why are you crying? Just get past it. No, God doesn't say that. God says, I collect your tears in a bottle. There's freedom and prescription to lament and to grieve. It is actually a part of our walk with God. And it's a part of our worship of God because the Psalms are books of worship. Not only that, but Jesus himself gives us freedom to grieve when he teaches us about grief in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember, right before he gets arrested and shortly before he would be on the cross being crucified, right, in the garden, what does it say? It says Jesus was filled with agony and sorrow so much that he started bleeding, sweating drops of blood that much agony and sorrow. You say, why? Did Jesus not trust his father? Jesus is is God. He knew how this was going to play out. Come on. Why was he sweating drops of blood? Because Jesus was not just fully God, he was fully man. And he took on your weak, broken human condition, which means he sweat and agonized and had sorrow about what he was going to face. And so Jesus himself, by taking on the human condition and lamenting in the Garden of Gethsemane, teaches us what it means to lament. We're called to suffer with Jesus. We're called to grieve well. We're called to to lament well. But we don't lament in a state of despair. We lament in a state of trust. As full as verses one and two are of lament and grief and sorrow, they are undergirded with trust. Let me show you where it is. 
Four times, David says, how long? Notice what is loaded in just the beginning of each question, how long? You see, David's not asking an if question there. He's asking a when question. He's not asking if God is going to deliver him or to rescue him. He's he's asking when. There is trust undergirding verses one and two from David. If you have children and you've gone on a long trip, you know what this looks like. We just got back from our summer vacation a month ago or so. Went up to Charlotte, North Carolina, six-hour drive. About hour four, maybe hour five, you can imagine what started to come from the back seat. How long, Daddy? How long, Mommy? How much longer till we get there? Notice, my kids were asking a when question, not an if question. They weren't asking, Daddy, are we gonna make it to Charlotte? Or, or Daddy, Mommy, is the car gonna break down on the side of the road? Or, hey, Daddy, are you gonna drive this car off a cliff? No, they were asking when. See, they fully trusted mommy and daddy. We're gonna get them to the destination, which was Charlotte, North Carolina. It was just a matter of when. See, we lament, but we lament with trust. How long? Second, how do we pray through tears? Lament with trust. Second, you pray through tears by pleading, by pleading with trust. Look at verses three and four. The the word plea means to ask for something or to request something with passion, with a, a degree of seriousness. That's a plea. That's what David does here. He turns from lament to plea in verses three and four. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David pleads with God here. He says, consider and answer me, God. The word consider means to to look upon. It's like David is in the middle of a dark forest, lost. And it's like he shoots a flare up into the sky and is saying, over here, I'm here, look at me. Now, this kind of language is, it's confrontational. It's it's somewhat demanding. It's all over the Psalms. And you read it and you go, can I speak to God that way? It It almost borderlines disrespectful. Can I really speak to God that way? Can I plea? Can I plead like that? Matt Woodley in his book, The Folly of Prayer, he describes his, he moved from Minnesota to Long Island, New York to pastor a a church there. And in his first two years, he met a man named David who was a, a Jewish follower of Christ. And every Sunday, after the, uh, uh, his sermon, and I'm not prescribing this, so don't get any good ideas, uh, but David would come up to Matt every Sunday after his sermon and critique his sermon. 
And he would, uh, he would, he would, and he would critique it. He'd say, hey, I loved your point there, but let me give you some Jewish insight into that. He had a passion for reading the scriptures through a Jewish perspective. And so, and every Sunday he'd come up and, and Matt would, would hear his critique and his five minute rebuttal of the sermon. He'd say, great, thank you for your insights. But after two years, as he describes, he was a Minnesotan, so he had a lot of long suffering in him. But after two years, he said, that's enough. And so David came up after the service one Sunday and he said, David, does God ever speak to you through my sermons? Why do you have to keep nitpicking my sermons? And, you know, David stepped back. He was kind of frozen. And then he, he broke the silence. And he said, I think we come from different backgrounds. He said, as a New York Jew, uh, I love to argue scripture. And when I argue with you, I'm expecting you to argue back. I'm expecting you to dialogue. He goes on to say this. This is what David said to this pastor. You see, Jewish people sometimes get close by working through unpleasant feelings, even by arguing if necessary. Confronting each other is a sign of intimacy in the relationship. So when I dish it out, I want you to dish it right back. That's how trust and intimacy grow in the relationship. And then this pastor follows it up with, with these words. This concept of achieving trust and intimacy with God through intense dialogue and even a rousing argument was certainly new to me. But through my friendship with David, God has started to teach me an important lesson about prayer. Sometimes prayer involves being completely honest with God. Sometimes we grow closer to God by bringing God all of the unpleasant things about our relationship, our sadness, our disappointments, laments, complaints, even our anger. Based on the numerous God-given prayers of complaint and lamentation, it's obvious that God can handle our honesty. There is freedom to plead with God. And like lament, though, it's not a pleading in despair it's a pleading with trust. Notice, right, the very plea of David here is, is laden with trust. It's a confession of trust. What David is saying is he's confessing his trust in God and confessing his own inadequacy. He's saying, I can't get out of this, God. I can't dry up my tears. I can't get out of my sorrow. I can't pick myself up by my bootstraps. His his plea with God is in itself a confession of trust that only God can do something about this. We have a wooden playset in our backyard and it attracts, for some reason, I guess they love wood, carpenter bees, if you know what I'm talking about, and they're pretty annoying. So this has played out several times. I'm out back on our wooden playset playing with my daughter. I'm pushing her on the swing, I'm playing on the playset, and a little carpenter bee decides it's gonna harass my daughter, which means flying around her head, and Kaylin does not like bugs, okay? Now, add a carpenter bee into the picture, and it's not good. And so as this bee is, is flying around her head and harassing her, she'll say, Daddy, help me! Okay, that's fair. But as the panic fills her heart, her, her, her anger and her fear and her frustration start to point towards me. 
And it turns into more like, Daddy, are you going to help me? Look at me. Can you get this bee out of here? Daddy, are you going to do anything about this? Now, I've got two ways to respond at that point. One is to say, Kaylin, noting that her words as the panic grows, that her words in a normal situation would be mildly disrespectful, okay? One response is to say, Kaylin, now you know that your words are getting disrespectful. You need to be careful how you speak to daddy. Or I can recognize that she is scared to death and believes that daddy can do something about it because daddy has protected her in the past and daddy has taken care of her in the past. And so her cry, her plea, daddy, do something, is a plea that is laden with trust. Listen, God loves it when you plead with him because you trust him. He loves it when you plead with him. Consider me, answer me, because you trust him. Third, praying through tears starts with lamenting, continues with pleading, and finally, praying through tears includes rejoicing with trust. Rejoicing. Look at verses five to six. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You say, wow, David is in the dark night of the soul. He has got tremendous sorrow, tremendous grief, flooding his bed with tears as other Psalms talk about. And yet he says, I rejoice in your salvation. Why? I, I think it's because David understands that he's not the only one asking the how long question. That God himself asks the how long questions. In fact, in Exodus 16, and in Numbers 14, God asks four how long questions that parallel David's four how long questions in Psalm 13. Now, let me give you the, just the background quickly on Exodus 16 and Numbers 14. God has just rescued his people out of Egypt, crossed through the Red Sea. He's part of the Red Sea. The minute they get on the other side, having been saved, having been delivered, they start to complain. The food here stinks. There's no water. Take us back to Egypt. So what does God say? In Numbers 14, God says, how long, how long will this people despise me? And how long, how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Then God in his gracious nature rains down bread and quail to feed them. And he says, listen, on the sixth day of the week, gather twice as much because on the seventh day, I want you to rest. It's the Sabbath. Seventh day comes. What do God's people do? They go out to gather. And so again, God says in Exodus 16, how long, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? And then for the fourth time in Numbers 14, God says, how long? shall this wicked congregation grumble against me. 
You know, as God grieved and mourned the rebellion of his people, he asked the same how long question that David asked in Psalm 13 about his own brokenness and sorrow. And yet God didn't wait for his people to clean up their act. He acted himself to answer his own how long question. If you, commun- if you participated in community Bible reading this past week, you would have read Isaiah 59, and it is remarkable. Starting in the end of verse 15, the Lord saw it. He saw the rebellion. He saw the complaining. He saw the sin. He saw the lack of gratitude, all that defines you and me. He saw it. And it displeased him that there was no justice, right? How long, God says, how long? He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then, then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak and a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Isaiah was speaking of Jesus Christ. Then as God asked the, how long will these people run from me? God says, I'm gonna answer my how long question. I'm gonna offer up my only son. In their place, for their sin, to save them. That's why David rejoices. Now, he was on the front side of the cross. We're on the back side of the cross in redemptive history. But David rejoiced because he knew that God was deliverer, that he brings salvation to his people, that he has dealt bountifully with us. You see, you ask your how long questions in the context of God's how long questions that he has already answered in Jesus Christ for you to bring an end to your sin and to save you. In his talk titled, The Sense of an Ending, Jeremy Begbie, he tells a story of going to a worship service in a poor South African township. And this is what he was told right before he went into this worship service. He was told that a house around the corner had just been burned to the ground because the man who lived there was a suspected thief. He was also told a week before that, a tornado had cut through the township, ripping apart 50 homes, five people had been killed in it. And then he was told the very night before the worship service that a gang had hounded down a 14-year-old, a member of the church's Sunday school, and stabbed him to death. And this is how the pastor opened the worship service in prayer. Lord, you are the creator and the sovereign But why did the wind come like a snake and tear our roofs off? Why did a mob cut short the life of one of our own children when he had everything to live for? Over and over again, Lord, we are in the midst of death. And then he describes what happened as he prayed that, that there was an audible and a dreadful sigh and groaning across the congregation. And then they started to sing. And it was quiet at first. And they continued to sing. And they sang louder. And they sang louder in praise of the God who in Jesus had plunged himself into the worst. 
to give them a promise, to give us a promise of an ending that is beyond imaginable. You pray through tears by lamenting, by grieving deeply with trust. You pray through tears by pleading with God boldly, confidently, because he's trustworthy and he has the power to change something. But last, you rejoice. As, as, as tears are streaming down your face, you rejoice in the salvation that God has bought for you in Jesus Christ, that he has dealt bountifully with you. He's given you his only son. One author writes it this way. Breathe now the fresh air of the ending. Taste the spices and sip the wine of the feast to come. Let's pray. Father, we are a people and we confess, a people that don't know how to grieve well. We don't know how to lament. We feel like we should get past it, that it's almost a, a lack of faith and yet we see here in Psalm 13 from your servant David that there is freedom to grieve, freedom to lament, that it's actually a part of our walk with you, that it's a part of worshiping you, of suffering with Christ. And Father, thank you that you're a God who is pleased when we plead with you because we trust you. And even that is a part of our relationship growing to have that kind of dialogue with you in the context of trust. Father, would you make us a people regardless of where we find ourselves in whatever state of grief or sorrow for some of us that are in the midst of, of blessing that aren't experiencing it. Would you turn our hearts to those around us that are in grief and sorrow and would you help us through the lens of Psalm 13 to help them lament to help them plead and, and to help them rejoice, would we be a people that rejoice because you have dealt bountifully with us. You have sent your son Jesus for us to save us, to rescue us, and to promise us an amazing, almost unimaginable ending where all the hurt, pain, grief, sorrow is swallowed up in victory. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us well. And would you inhabit our praises as we close? In your name we pray, amen.